0: Welcome, everybody, to episode 17 of the Ascent of Board Games. It's a little bit of an unusual assemblage of podcasters this month. Jason and Mike are both unavailable for various travel reasons, so it's myself, Brian, Joe, and Frank, and Sandy has returned to us from the depths of the Gothic Game Castle to provide some additional feedback.
1: Jason's also our big preparation who goes through lists all the games, gets everything in line, so I apologize if we're a little
0: messy. Yeah, it was literally all four of us scrambling to replace Place jason in terms of putting notes together so we've we've probably got some things wrong but it's okay if we're wrong we'll just erase it from the internet no one will ever know it's true it's true so this month because we have just finished with thanksgiving and or, or we will have just finished with thanksgiving when this episode comes out and we're probably sick to death of dealing with family and other people we wanted to talk about solitaire games so that you can go off and get away from all those people and still get some board gaming fun in Folks who have listened to the podcast for a while will know that I spent a lot of time playing board game solitaire as a young person because I was getting into board games before everybody else was. And I say that not to be hipstery, but basically to say that I had no one to play games with. So I spent an awful lot of time upstairs just playing both sides of a war game and that kind of thing. And that's fine. I'm an introvert. That works for me but it let me learn a lot about what's going on. And still to this day, sometimes when I get a new game and I'm wanting to teach it to people, I will sit down and play through a couple turns myself against myself just to get a feel for how it works. I really should do that. (laughs) I mean, that is the thing I like to do. I don't often have time. Anyway, solitaire games go back a long way because there have been introverts around for a long time. When you say solitaire to... Your average American, especially your average non-gamer, they are thinking of what are technically referred to as patience games. At least that's the European, UK reference to them. We tend to call them solitaire card games. The most common one being Klondike, you know, the one where you have the row of seven cards and row of six cards and row of five cards, the one that you play on your iPhone or your PC or whatever. I'm not sure how many people actually play those with decks of cards anymore, but they could.
1: Yeah, there's so many solitaire computer games.
2: I have in my life done that. Yeah, no, I have too,
0: (laughs) because there are times when, when there are no resources available. But yeah, those are what people usually think of when you say solitaire, and they sort of became popular in the late 1700s, late 18th century. Interestingly, they seemed to become popular right around the time that cartomancy, the art of fortune telling with cards, also became popular huh so i have this vision in my head of you know people who are telling fortunes and then you know their mom or the priest came by and they said no no just playing a solitaire game just nothing to see here
1: and the spread of cards really happened about that time so yeah there are two forms of solitaire that predate that there's the classic peg solitaire which if you've been to cracker barrel you've <laughs> dragged out that triangle and, and played with it the original was like a french cross with 37 holes but it's the same game. You're jumping, playing a version of Checker.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Like the first recorded version of that, there is a portrait of a noble lady with one of those games sitting beside her. So apparently noble women were also really bored. They
3: possibly. weren't allowed to do anything. Right. There's also possibly
1: Mahjong Solitaire, which either dates from the Confucian's time or basically came over to the U.S. in like the 20s or 30s, along with the Mahjong craze that swept the U.S. about that time.
0: Yeah, there is allegedly, at least according to the people that came out with the first mahjong computer game. Something that is called Destroy the Turtle or Fishing for the Golden Turtle, which was an old game that was played with Mahjong tiles. And of course, you can find plenty of references to it now, but it's not entirely clear if that was actually a thing that existed in China before but the computer game came if you played
1: the old Activision game Shanghai, you know, you build a turtle and you pull them off. Match, and, pieces,
2: and match and pieces, pull them away. Yeah. I like Mahjong Solitaire a lot. Video game wise, obviously, that's where every human being building the last 10 years or 15 years have played it. But like, I really like the visualization of it and like, you can have all kinds of crazy patterns and everything. So,
1: Although the first computer version of that was actually written for the Plato system. Which, nice. There's a book called uh, The Friendly Orange Glow, which is well worth reading if you're a computer geek. And yes, I've slogged the entire 25-hour audiobook, <laughs> uh, which was just fascinating. There's so much stuff I didn't know.
0: Very cool. Computers, especially in the early days, didn't have much in the way of AI and didn't have much in the way of networking play unless you were on a mainframe. So solitaire games were a good thing. Plato had
1: X-Track. net <laughs> Plato was like the foundation of the internet. Sure, and how scary. many people
0: owned those? No one. Right. There's your problem. <coughs> but in any event, uh, it was around 1980... When there started being some official for release games that were designed for a single player, particularly.
1: Being the gamer geezer here, I guess, the one I played a lot of was Death Maze and its follow up Citadel Blood. Both were 1979 and I think 1981 by Greg kastikian from SPI. These were weird because they consisted of 100 counters, no maps, and some rules, and you had to buy your dice separately because. It was the 70s and 80s. And basically each counter represented a tile. You drew tiles to basically put the dungeon layout in little tiles. Whenever you got to a new room that wasn't a corridor, you rolled dice to see what you encountered, generated your monster table, lined them up like a JRPG, and then fought with some basic AI for the critters. And then occasionally there'd be a feature, like a fountain you could drink from, treasure chests, so on.
0: So it really was kind of just a random dungeon generator
1: totally. And yeah, there were, he was going for D&D, and it was actually strictly a solitaire game. We sometimes played it with four or five, you know, split up the characters and do the D&D. You game. renegade. Yeah, totally.
0: <laughs> Another one that I just realized I meant to put on this list and didn't is a pair from 1980 called Caverns of Doom and Crypt of the Sorcerer. I may have mentioned them because they're a huge nostalgic factor. They were both from Heritage Games, and they were mostly a way, I think, for them to start selling miniatures. Basically, each game came with a handful of hero miniatures and a set of monster miniatures and a sort of little fold-out map. You would travel the party around, and whenever you entered a room, you would roll a die to see which of the monsters were there, had a real basic combat system. Script of the Sorcerer was a pretty small map. You just sort of went from the beginning to the end. I think there was one fork in the path where you could go a couple different ways. Real simple game, but, uh, you know, it came with miniatures and paints and a crappy artificial bristle brush. But those were the first miniatures I ever painted, and I still have fond memories of those games. How do they play? Basically, you pick your character. I think you're only playing one character at a time. Maybe two. Maybe two, yeah. I'm not sure. But basically, you, you move a certain number of spaces a turn. And when you would go into a room, it would like, all right, go into this room. If you roll a one or a two, it's a skeleton warrior. A three or four, it's a skeleton or Five or six, it's an orc. And then you would have a little fight with it, and maybe you would gain some treasure hmm. and, and go on from there. The Temple of Doom was a little bit bigger. You could actually connect the two of them together oh, for, yeah. for an epic, you know, three-page adventure. But that was another fun early one, and again, in the sort of dungeon crawl mode.
1: Yeah, Grenadier did one that was kind of a rip off of it, since Grenadier was the other big miniatures manufacturer at the time theirs had this vacuform 3d dungeon that was absolutely Ooh. well it looked like a basic insert but it was awesome at the time
0: sure what was that called
1: uh, too hard i have
0: to look at uh-huh up. see if you're gonna cite things you're gonna need to have your sources alert the media we found something frank doesn't know
2: <laughs> so a game that is functionally a single player game even though it has rules for playing with multiple people it's a shared experience in a lot of ways is Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, designed by Raymond Edwards, Susan Goldberg, and Gary Grady, published by Sleuth Publications. And kind of all the games in the Consulting Detective series and Mythos, Tales, and kind of all of its followers are functionally solitaire games. Even like the new game Detective, right? They're all solitaire games, and you can add on mechanics that make it feel like not a solitaire game, but they're all functionally solitaire games, right? You're solving... A mystery, hey, solving a mystery with more people is generally more fun. But like in Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, I don't even think there are different rules. Do you actually take turns or you decide everything as a group? I don't actually know how the solitaire You take turns as a You group. take turns, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but you're still kind of working cooperatively. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It is really a solitaire. Getting game. more brains. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then in the 1980s, the early 1980s particularly, there seemed to be a lot of solitaire games coming out that were big and complicated i think there was a certain amount of there are some really nerdy people who like getting into these complicated games but they probably don't have many friends so we'll just make solitaire games you know and i'm talking about things like the ambush series which we talked about in our paragraph games episode and this is a series of a dozen or so link scenarios in the base box that might run an hour an hour and a half each with detailed rules on what stance your soldiers are in and hex by hex you check the little paragraph book slider to tell you what is in that hex and that kind of thing i still have an immense fondness for that game but i mean you could spend an entire day getting through a couple scenarios similarly something like b17 queen of the skies is another one where you're you know running a b17 going over europe and it's got all these detailed rules about flak and the hit locations and where you are and dealing with the enemy fighters and that sort of thing so These were games for people that had a lot of time and not a lot of fellow gamers. So that was something that you saw a lot of in the early 80s, which was kind of my formative years with board gaming in a lot of ways, which is why I'm the way I am today. board
1: games, they were often rated on solitaire suitability. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of those games were 20 plus hour games just for a single game. Yeah. And so that was kind of a thing.
0: Yeah, you have to be available, because even then, it was not always easy to get your same group of friends together on a regular basis to play an ongoing campaign. How many months have we been spending to get to Chapter 3 of Madara so far, Joe? No comment. No, no, it's too painful to think about.
2: We had to stop listening to the audio, because the audio is taking too long. There's a lot of audio in that game. Anyway,
0: we digress. Often. Yes, that's sort of 90% of what we do. Then there was sort of a a dry spell for solitaire games. I think a lot of the the World War II-based ones did okay, but not enough for a lot of game companies to say, yeah, let's jump on that and make a, a bunch of really crunchy solitaire war games. I think the next big one that we found on our list that wasn't just a solitaire game but had a dedicated solitaire rule set was Agricola in 2007. This is Uwe Rosenberg's game from Lookout Games and Z-Man Games and a bunch of other publishers. It was a fairly heavy Euro at the time. We always refer to it as the game about the plight of the subsistence farmer.
2: I mean, it is. You're desperately trying to survive. It's an unusual game, and it was certainly unusual at the time, because it wasn't about how awesome you could do a thing. It was like hey can i survive till next winter measuring survival as score mechanics but i imagine if they released the game today you'd have like people die it's just right on the edge of everything being awful right. <laughs> but like it's not colored that way so like if you go look at it right it doesn't speak that way but I always like that when you play it, you feel like you're a subsistence farmer. The game is, in some part, toil, like, intentionally. <laughs> uh, not in a bad way, it's just, like, it's fascinating how it kind of represents everything with that specific toil.
0: Yeah, and all the art is very brightly colored and cheerful, and, you know, oh, oh, the happy bucolic life of the rural farmer. But in that, you're living right on the edge. But anyway, Agricola is obviously best known as a, as a multiplayer game with a, a million, you know, variants and expansion packs and decks and that sort of thing. But there is a dedicated single-player mode, and that's one of the first places we saw that in a commercial board game, certainly in a big hit. And basically you are trying to score progressively more points over a series of seasons. It's really just kind of a play the game as efficiently as you can sort of thing. But certainly it's a way for those people who are really into a certain game to sort of get their practice on and sort of drill down and optimize their strategies and then play with other people and make them sad.
2: Yeah, I can only imagine coming into someone who has played that game a bunch solitaire. They will be really good at that game. Yep. Oh,
0: yeah. yeah. Or indeed
2: somebody who's played it a lot multiplayer.
0: They're...
1: Actually, it's depending a lot on the combinations, of the powers you get, especially mm-hmm. in Agricola.
0: Another one of the war games in the sort of long, complicated series that sort of came back around now was Ranger in 2009. From Omega Games, designed by Bill Gibbs. And that's basically a game where you are managing a U.S. Army Ranger patrol through various types of terrain, and the ideal patrol, of course, is when nothing happens, because no one is likely to get killed. It doesn't usually end up that way. That's one of those that is for the war gamer or the war simulationist, and is quite well regarded among that crowd. There was a re-release of it in, I think, 2014 or so, that adds some much nicer components So if you're into that sort of thing, rangers want to look up. I'm not sure how easy it is to find these days, but it's out there. I feel like I'm doing all the talking here, but this is when I was doing a lot of things alone. (laughs) No, it's fine. But uh, Nemo's War uh, was originally released in 2009 the original version was fine it was clearly done on a small budget yeah Uh, victory
1: point games did a lot of small press tiny and gradually they've started taking some of their better more complete games and doing full kickstarters to get them like nicely printed
0: yep and that's what happened with nemo's war this is a chris taylor game by the way in 2017 there was a kickstarter for the second edition of nemo war which i have and which is lovely big board really nice components high quality stuff the premise is that you are playing Captain Nemo from Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. And it harkens back much more to the novel rather than to the Disney film. And, you know, you're traveling around the Seven Seas, finding treasure, sometimes sinking surface ships if they're jerks or if you're a jerk. It's interesting because at the start of the game, you can sort of choose what kind of Nemo you want to play. Are you interested just in exploration and science? Are you trying to overthrow the surface powers Basically, you get a different set of victory point scales for the various things you can explore, discover, unearth, sink, depending on what your focus is.
1: Yeah, Nemo in the novels was
0: not quite as nice as no, the Disney. not a not a real friendly guy. You gradually add more and more dangerous enemy warships to the pool of ships as time goes by, and the more ships you sink, the more warships come after you. Really neat game. There are, interestingly enough, multiplayer roles for it, so this is sort of the opposite where you have a game that was built as a single-player game, but you can add more people in to be the crew and vote on uh, decisions and potentially mutiny and take control of themselves. If you're into a more recent version of those big, fancy, pretty games, Nemo's War is highly recommended.
2: The reprint is gorgeous. It really it is. It's so nice. pretty. Like I was looking at the pictures of it earlier today, and I was like, man, this game looks like a modern board game. <laughs> yes, it, it is, really.
1: <laughs> Chris Taylor's like a designer who worked on some of the Fallout games. He's a video game designer who occasionally breaks into board games. And I think that was his first, which is...
0: Uh, That is a strong opener if that's your first board game. And then the last one I wanted to mention from this period is sort of the opposite of Nemo's War. It's a very small and compact one called Friday by Friedman Friese, published by 2F Spiel. It's an interesting little deck builder. Basically, your Robinson Crusoe, a theme we'll come back to in Solitaire Games. And you are basically trying to build up enough strength and equipment to defeat the pirate ships that are keeping you from getting off the island. It's got an interesting little mechanic because when you're fighting, if you win a fight, you basically take the card of the thing you have defeated and it becomes a better fight card in your hand. If you lose a fight, you are taking damage, which means you're taking cards out of your deck, which means you can get rid of some crappier cards. So it's an interesting tightrope walk (laughs) uh, to get to it. It plays maybe half-hour tops, but it's a a fun little game. Fits in a small box. Good way to spend a little solitaire time if you need to. I'm going to stop talking for a while now.
2: The next game we wanted to talk about was Mage Knight, um, released in 2011. Designed by Vlada Kavatel and released by WizKid Games. The base game comes with a solo scenario, and then each of the expansions comes with an additional solo scenario. But because of the way the game works, right, there's a lot of random components, right, there's a lot of random decks where things kind of come out of during the course of the game. And so the nice thing about playing it over and over again, even though you're playing the same scenario, stuff will happen in a different order, right, you know, different events will potentially happen. There's a lot of characters to choose from, and each of the characters play pretty differently, ultimately, So when you're playing by yourself, it's much more like, hey, I'm going to explore how this character plays as opposed to I'm trying to race against my friends and figure out how this character plays, right? So it's a little bit more of a sedentary pace, right? As you're kind of fully exploring your character as opposed to racing with everyone, which is the kind of the normal Mage Knight grind, as it were. And I think that's
0: something you see in a lot of sort of these solitaire versions of other games is it's really almost more of a puzzle-solving issue. You're not just... Because you're not trying to beat somebody else. You're just trying to optimize what you have with your resources. And
1: Yeah, Mage Knight is a really terrifyingly complex resource optimization that looks like an adventure game. <laughs> but it's really a deck building. I've got cubes and gems and etc. It's a really? great
0: one. And really popular as a solo game. If you look at any of the lists of solitary games on the Board Game Geek, you'll see a lot of people have that adder near the top. It's a good game all around. Works well with one.
1: Next up is Legends of Andor, which is Cosmos 2012, designed by Michael Menzel. That's gone through, like, a few expansions, three big boxes. All of them ultimately come down to three or four big boards and a giant puzzle as things swarm your castle and you have to deal with them. You experience up and everything, but it ultimately comes down to a big puzzle because you don't want to kill things. If you kill too many things, they'll just speed up, which is just... A little bonkers, but creates a really interesting tactical puzzle.
0: So it's sort of the old Space Invaders thing, you know, the fewer of them there are, the faster they come at you?
1: Yeah, totally. And one thing about the game is that it kind of was one of the first almost legacy because it has a story deck that drives everything, throws surprises at you, and there's a new story deck for each big scenario. And the scenarios are quite different and sometimes go directions
2: you weren't expecting.
0: Hmm... I'll have to check that one out. Oh, totally. Good
1: to know. And totally solitaire friendly.
2: Mike loves a heck out of Legend of Andor. Yeah, I've heard him mention
0: that. I wish he was here to tell us more about it, but it's okay.
2: I think what he said about it previously is that it's functionally a solo game that pretends to be a non-solo game, and then when you play it solo, you're like, oh, this is the actual game.
0: Right. There's more than a few of those, like the next one on our list, actually. Robinson Crusoe, Adventures on the Cursed Island, 2012 Ignacy Trevicek from Portal Games. And yeah, this is one that is theoretically a group multiplayer cooperative game where you're trying to gather everything together to survive on the island. But in many ways, it's basically a solitaire game where you have other people that you can suggest what they do to make things happen. It works perfectly fine as a solitaire game. I know there are a variety of different scenarios out there. I think there are some dedicated solo ones.
1: Maybe. I think the Voyage of the Beagle might be solitaire, or a few of the scenarios are solitaire. But as is, it's nice to have the extra brains because it is a pretty hard game. Especially as you're learning the details of what you're doing and how much risk you can safely take.
0: Yeah. Again, with a lot of these kind of games, it's the sort of thing where you'll spend a couple games dying horribly as you figure out how the whole thing works. Multiple brains are good.
3: I want to know what Darwin has to do with Robinson
0: Crusoe. <laughs> that is a perfectly valid question.
2: Um, they were both on an island. There were boats. There, yeah, there were boats. It. <laughs>
1: They did a weird Voyage of the Beagle with different islands that obviously he got stuck on and abandoned. I don't remember that part really.
0: Yeah, no, that, that wasn't in the book. I guess they thought, oh, we have some good mechanics. We'll just expand on that. And who's another famous person on a boat? Got it.
3: I didn't know that they started collecting animals and stuff. I miss that part.
2: <laughs> well, I mean... The-
0: crusoe did but he was mostly collecting animals to eat
2: yeah well so he would not die yeah, yeah. you're not wrong robinson adventure adventures of the island voyage of the beagle weird game just like weird weird theme strange theme very strange
0: i'm kind of waiting to see if the next one is robinson crusoe blackbeard's treasure just you know stuff it all in there it's, it's people on boats and islands robinson crusoe
1: surviving the titanic
0: there is, in fact, a Robinson Crusoe King Kong scenario, so... Oh, there oh
3: we
1: go. So that
0: was an island. There's a Treasure Island one. Okay, so there's just basically anything with people on an island, if I think, is fair game here. We just call it Robinson Crusoe, because uh, that's it's the It's totally
1: name. the ka-ching factor. Yeah, span.
0: no, I'll, I'll buy that.
3: Name recognition. Apparently.
0: One more of the little Solitaire games that recently came back on Kickstarter that I just recently received is a game called Maki. It was originally done in 2013 by Jake Staines from uh, Side Room Games. And basically, you are playing as the French Resistance during World War II in Paris. Basically, you have two missions you have to accomplish by the end of the game, and it's a matter of placing your Resistance workers in certain locations, and then there are patrol cards that come up where the Parisian police and or the Germans will come in in certain locations. And while there are a lot of places where you can go on the map to get resources, you have to be able to trace a path back to your safe room at the end of the turn. And since you place, they place, you place, they place... There are times when one bad card draw will cut off and, like, get all of your guys killed. So it's a it's a tough little balancing act. I think I like it. I've only played it a couple times so far, but it seems to be a good one
2: so what kind of started happening in the mid 2010s is a lot of games came out where they started caring about solo play so before this right you'd have mage knight and agricola right kind of like early adopters of like well hey, okay, let's make it so that everyone can play this game even a single person but that as you come into the mid 2010s right you see a fair number of games and a lot of heavy games that we've talked a fair amount about on this podcast have specific solo modes or can be played in a solo fashion the first of these games that we found was Legendary Encounters Alien and kind of the entire Legendary Encounters series, right?
0: Because, also known as The Good Ones. Uh,
2: also known as The Good Ones. Because in Legendary Encounter games, you're playing against a specific board setup. You were struggling and trying to win against that board setup. Do whatever the specific missions entail, right? As opposed to the base Legendary games where it's a the base game is a cooperative game. Uh, in the Legendary Encounters games, you can play by yourself, right? Like, hey, you have a single person, right? You'll have your deck of cards. You buy cards, use them. The base game setup doesn't really change an awful lot. In Legendary Encounters Aliens, you put in a, a different number of generic cards based on the number of players. controls the game length a little bit. But above me on that, the, the game plays exactly the same as one player as multiple players. And there's a
0: lot of good theme options in there. So if you're looking for something like that, you can probably find a Legendary Encounters game that will work for you. If you do look up a Legendary game, make sure it has the word Encounters in the title, because otherwise you will be sad. That is true. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that happened around that same time period is Jamie Stegmeyer of Stonemeyer Games has started adding to most of his games what is called an Automa player, which is basically a deck of cards that simulates another player. So you can use those if you just want, say, to add a fourth entity to a three-player game, or you can use it to play a solitaire game. Um, One of the first expansions for Viticulture uh, in 2015 was, as far as I remember, the first Automa game that he did, but he has since put it in There's one in Scythe, there's one in Euphoria.
2: There's one in Tapestry.
0: There is one in Tapestry. There's even one in Between Two Cities. There's a lot of them out there. What?
2: There's one in Between Two Cities?
0: it, It doesn't seem like the kind of game that would lend itself to that. That's uh, super weird. Between two cities, if you haven't seen it, is basically sort of the anti-Seven Wonders in that you're building a city with the neighbor on your left and a city with the neighbor on your right, and you score whichever of yours is lower. So you want both of your cities to be good, but not enough that your neighbor on the other side is going to do better than you are.
1: The automatism um, design is interesting because often they don't actually play as a player, so they don't have full AI. Mm-hmm. They just represent your interactions like there's another player playing. So they often don't set up boards. They just, oh, this is how they screw with the main board and change the thing.
0: Yeah, this is the results of their actions. Yeah. It's interesting because in most cases, at least in the Stonemeyer games, Jamie has a separate designer who is doing the Automa deck. Morton Peterson is the guy who has done most, if not all, of the Automa rules for Stonemaier. And that's kind of his thing. So basically, Jamie Stegmeyer and the other designers he works with get the core rules down. And then Morton basically goes in and says, all right, how is the best way to simulate another player with this with a deck of cards and maybe a couple other components? They're really interesting from a game design standpoint. So if you're a game designer and curious about these things, it might be worth going through one of those decks and pulling it apart a little bit to sort of see what the logic is behind it. I think it's a really great feature. I mean, obviously, I'm a fan of single player games. It's a a useful tool to have out there. And again, if nothing else, it gives people more ways to play your game. And that's good.
3: Are these decks stacked or are they random? No, they're they're pretty random. So it's basically sowing chaos.
0: Depends. It reacts to the board state
1: and everything. It's actually pretty bizarre. Yeah, it's to like, in. you know,
0: it will move in. You have a choice of three people to go after. Whoever has the most points right now gets an attack on them. Or sometimes it's just randomly going to the nearest supply of stone or wood and or whatever. suck things off the board. You're still to some extent playing a solitaire game, but you can't rely on what's going to be available when you get there because there's another entity trying to get them. And yeah,
1: they have difficulty levels.
0: There's a surprisingly sophisticated amount of logic going on in there just from the deck of cards. Yeah.
1: At least the sort of games that we tend to play are the home versions of Escape Room games. And I have bought all of them, basically. (laughs) And Sandy and I play all of them. So we're going to hope to give you an overview of at least the lines, which ones are good, which ones have certain kinds of styles. They're really... Five big producers of these.
0: Yeah, and they all started virtually simultaneously. Oh, yeah, as soon as I, escape
1: I, rooms became a thing.
0: Yeah, like the real world escape rooms reached a certain critical mass, and then all the game publishers are like, we can put that in a box. And they all did. Yeah.
1: I think really the first ones to come into the US were from Think Fun Toys, and they were called Escape the Room the Secret of Dr. Gravely's Retreat.
0: Probably Gravely. Gravely. Yeah, you're right. It might mean he just talks like this. He's actually a nice guy.
1: And typically the way this one works is you have a dial that you spin to represent your three combination of things, and it'll give you a symbol to indicate, and if it matches the symbol of one of your envelopes, you can open an envelope and pull out more pieces. There are a lot of puzzle pieces. There was some string and paper folding in that, some bizarre rope and knot puzzles.
0: And are these usually timed
1: Yes, totally.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: So yeah, it's typically the hour. Some of these you drift into an hour and a half as they've gotten more elaborate. These are okay, but they're a little dated. The puzzles are a little simple, but that one's a reasonably solid one. I think the next one to come out in the U.S. were actually Escape Room the Game. This one is probably the most prolific one and easiest to find on the toy shelves. The base set comes with a big electronic thing. With a bunch of keys that you have to physically put the keys into the lock and it keeps track of which one you're doing somehow and says if it's right or wrong
0: computer magic computer magic
1: yeah the weird part is that it's actually i think the worst um it's by spin master toys
3: it has the lovely prop but it was not as fun to do and yeah some
1: of them have been okay some of them have just been wonky and that doesn't make sense they did a little vr that comes with a phone vr google cardboard thing you have to look around your submarine and stare at stuff but their puzzles are really non-intuitive our friend sean molly refers to them as guess what i'm thinking puzzles which is just the death of one of those yeah meanwhile while we were looking at our and wailing over what we got in the u.s the germans and french were working on it I think the first one that hit were Exit, originally by Marcus Ninka Brand and published by Cosmos. These are interesting. They just are a deck of cards. Clues are on the cards and uh, there are some books representing puzzles and you can look at them and they're structured a lot more like an escape room, but it's literally it's just a card, a book, and maybe a sheet of props. And those have probably some of the best puzzles, but we'll, I don't know, drift into the Guess what I'm thinking is they've gotten harder.
3: A little bit. Early on, most of them had very familiar puzzle types that you've seen over and over and over. And they have gotten where they're trying to get away from that. And inevitably, you end up with a... Well, guess what I'm thinking.
0: Yes. You come up with a wide variety of new puzzle types, and some of them are good.
1: But occasionally the exits will throw something just bonkers at you. <laughs> I think uh, we got the Wild Western where you have to throw darts at little stand-ups. So a little dexterity component stuck mm-hmm. in the middle of your game. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, we do a lot of escape rooms in person, you know, yeah. the, the real-life ones. And one thing that we like to look for in a good escape room, especially if it's one that supports more than three or four people is the sort of thing where you've got multiple puzzles going on at once. you can have some people working on this, some people working on that. Are these more kind of single-threaded? Like, here is your thing, you solve that, here is the next thing?
1: A lot of them, I think, are single-threaded. Occasionally, I've seen a couple that break up.
3: We've done several that you're working on something different than what I'm working on. But I don't think those were escapes.
1: There was one exit that split up the group.
0: Which, I guess, makes it a little more interesting for solo play, because you can just sort of see which one you're trying to... Yeah, true. trying to fix it at a given point, because that's one thing that sometimes you'll see in the less good physical escape rooms is basically, all right, we have three locks that need a four digit code. Here is a puzzle that gives a four digit number with no indication of what it belongs to. So just plug it in all the locks and see what works.
1: Yeah, no, they are better at that. Generally, they're equivalent to decent escape rooms. Okay, The weird one comes down when you get to the unlock series. This is created by the people that did time stories. And also in conjunction, it comes with an app, which is required Mm -hmm. in particular to do any of the puzzles. There are little mini games sometimes on the app, sound, visual clues, little app things in there, as well as your timer. And if you get a wrong guess, it'll (laughs) take away a little bit of time from you. Also, the unlock starts to include adventure game elements to where the key with unlock is that you often have red pieces and blue pieces they are marked with little puzzle pieces. You can take any red and blue and combine them, which case you look at the card adding those together. If there's a matching number, yay. It did a thing. Although they do include some traps that just say, oh, subtract a minute, hit the penalty button, subtract (laughs) a minute. That's just stupid.
2: (laughs) Why would you even do that?
1: (laughs) The unlock series are wildly inventive. There's an Alice in Wonderland one that is weird.
2: There's an Oz one too which is really good.
1: Yeah, oh the Oz you're right, the Oz one that's really good. Yeah. All right,
2: I'll have
0: to check those out. I have not done many of these Escape rooms at Ox. I remember one time at I think it was an Oasis, there was one that was like set in an astronomer's lab and I remember doing all sorts of weird zodiac calculations. Oh, I
1: think that was Stargazer, so that was like a
0: Might have been.
2: It was one of the older ones, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was it I was one, of, was the early one ones. of the earlier ones. Think fun.
1: But series. it was still pretty cool. The other good one's Deckscape, which is Italian. And theirs is big tarot cards. That's it. Nothing fancy. But their puzzles are generally almost perfect difficulty. They're all solvable. And they actually do, in the London one, they do split up into four groups. Hmm. Interesting. And require you to go get go off and get four sections. Okay. And there's one with time where you have to jump back in time. They're probably the best at paralyzing and getting the whole escape room thing. Okay.
0: Okay. It sounds like that might be harder to do as a single player. Things like if you're split up into four groups and the clock is still running while you try and solve the four individual puzzle lines.
1: Yeah, totally. That's yeah,
0: it is a little harder. That's cool. Sometimes you can have friends help with these things. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But now they've started drifting into newer types of more adventure games. The one we played over this weekend was called The Dungeon by Cosmos. And it's called Exit Adventure Line Games. They've done two games, The Dungeon and Monochrome, Inc. This is a pure paragraph game, literally set up like a computer adventure. You each get a character, and you must play at least two characters if you're playing solitaire. And you have one skill, like strength, skill, I think. Mm-hmm. You
3: were yeah, I was the skilled.
0: <laughs>
2: oh, that sounds useful. One of them is the
0: attentive. We need one of those in our real life escape room group.
2: She makes her spot hidden roles all the time. Yeah, we, we don't. And the knowledgeable. Yep, the knowledgeable, and the strong, and then the skilled.
1: And basically, depending on who's reading some of the paragraphs, it may change how the paragraphs work. Interesting. But like fighting fantasy, you've got hit points. You'll take hit points of damage for choosing badly. There are little puzzles, clues, items you put together, items you use at certain locations. But actually, unlike the escape rooms, which are generally 60 to 90 minutes... This one's three segments, each about 60 to 90 minutes. So there's a lot of game in that little box. And there's one called uh, Time, where you basically play kind of time Time cops. Not really time cops, but you see someone's death, and you have to go back and find out why they died and change it. And you can jump back to various timelines.
0: Got a little bit of that tragedy looper vibe going on. Oh, totally.
3: But co-op
1: or solitaire.
0: obviously this is a rich and untapped vein of things oh yeah totally
3: Dude, what about things like escape the crate
1: oh and then there's escape the crate which is probably my favorite actually because those really feel like escape rooms it's a subscription service though so mm-hmm. you can buy individual boxes they're all pricey they're about 25 bucks each but they contain envelopes an online uh, an online guide that reads you everything occasionally gives you puzzles says which envelope you can open but they often include weird little plastic things, odd
0: puzzles. and Yeah, there's, there's a lot of those services out there now. And I haven't subscribed to any of them because I'm sure some of them are really good and some of them are less so. And I don't know enough to make an informed decision. So if you, the listener, have any that you've tried and would recommend or would not recommend, I'd love to hear about I it. I can
1: recommend Escape the Crate.
0: Okay, sounds good.
1: And possibly Not Breakout, which was a little too esoteric which was another subscription service.
3: I did not enjoy that one. <laughs> okay. It it had a lot of really very interesting ideas where there was all of this stuff they set up all these like websites where you could go and read about the tragedy and all of that and the Their people's lives pages and, and Instagram. And yeah. I mean, they did all that and it was like the amount of work and detail was real but I was just not by like the third one I didn't care who killed that woman.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: the puzzles were yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, and then sometimes you'll get stuff like the mysterious package company who do these. They're not really games; they're sort of some minimal puzzle content in them. Mostly, you're getting them because there are these really cool, creepy props.
3: Yep. Yeah. Oh, there are two of them. They're they're lovely.
0: Hmm. For certain values of lovely. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: And yeah, the stuff they come with and the stories and everything. Yeah. And of course, there's the Wilson Wolf, which is its own crazy.
0: Yeah, that was a Kickstarter from a year or two ago.
1: Yeah, and we're still going through it. It's a giant pile of animation from a satanic 1930s era animation company.
0: Like you do. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Like you do. So yeah, there's a lot of this sort of puzzly stuff out there. If you are interested in going down that rabbit hole, we could probably run another podcast on those. But I suspect there's already a couple out there. On Mike's behalf, I feel like we can't let an episode go without mentioning Arkham Horror, the card game. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because none of us love it as much as Mike does. But it's one of those games that is designed as a multiplayer game, but you can certainly manage it solitaire just by playing a couple characters. I'm I'm going to read you a quote from Mike the other day. I ran into him at a, a local game store when I was playing Malifaux and he was playing Arkham Horror. And one of the other Malifaux players asked him what he thought of the game. And his response was, I really love it, but I love it like a kick in the balls. Arkham
1: Horror for all your kick in the balls I mean, needs.
2: That feels like that game. It's, yeah, exactly. It's an awful game that hates you a lot. And for some reason, Mike has been chained up with it for so long that he loves it now. Or no, Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. It's the sunk cost fallacy writ large.
0: We'd like to save Mike if we can. So we may need to schedule an intervention one of these episodes if you can help. Please send your donations to these set of War Games. And then we get to the stage where, more recently, in the last few years, you're getting a lot of multiplayer games that have a dedicated solo component. In addition to all the Automa stuff we talked about with Stonemire, Terraforming Mars has a good solo component where you're basically just trying to maximize your score within a certain amount of turns. Spirit Island has a mini version where you're basically playing the game as one player and it works the same way as the rest of the game does. You're just playing it on a single tile.
2: Yeah, you just add more tiles for more players, and so it scales naturally down to one, which is pretty clever, right? So you can just play with one, play with two, three, or four, eventually five once I release the fifth board. And still go. get your ass kicked. And well, still sure. get your ass kicked, yeah. I would imagine that playing it single player with some of the spirits is probably nigh on impossible which would be fascinating for someone who really likes a puzzle with a fair amount of randomness to it mm-hmm. or if you don't use the event cards not a lot of randomness to it depending on how much randomness you want
0: and even Bloomhaven, that epic that many of us love so much has a series of solo scenarios for each class which are really almost more like puzzles for each oh, class yeah. using your custom abilities in weird and wonky ways to get some fabulous loot you can sort of thread those in with your multiplayer campaign if your other people can't show up go in and get yourself some bonus loot that you can taunt them with
1: oh my god the was awesome because <laughs> i did do that one mm. and i uh, oh it's weird because he's not a combatant
0: i'm gonna be bleeping that class name okay, out because right, right. spoilers but anyway yeah, interesting stuff to be done, for
2: sure. Uh, much in the same way, Swords and Sorcery is uh, kind of one of those classic dungeon crawl games, but there's no GM on the other side. All the enemies are automated, right? Like they have, in essence, little scripts on each of their cards. And so it plays really well as a single-player game, right? You can go through the entire story and experience all the content by yourself if you wanted. And There's a lot of content out there. We've been playing that game on Saturday for quite a while now. We're on the final box where we're going to fight a giant five-headed dragon Mm -hmm. as the kind of the final boss of the entire campaign. That
0: sounds creepy. And then there are also some games that are billed as multiplayer games, but we find, or at least I find, tend to work better as solitaire games. Seventh Continent is kind of the obvious one that comes up because it is a long, complex game of exploration. And with any more than two players, some of the mechanics start to break down in terms of sharing equipment and hand size limits and that sort of thing
1: oh yeah totally i mean seventh continent doesn't have turns so even if you're playing as a multiplayer game one player could just sit there and play take all the turns and everyone and just get all sit. the stuff
0: well except you can't carry all the stuff
1: that's true
2: because your hand is limited with more players which actually makes the game really frustrating yep so
0: it's like
1: oh yeah come along be the mule <laughs> it's really the multiplayer experience there
0: well i mean certainly you can Decide do it as a multiplayer co-op discuss. but I think it works best as a single player game because you can take as much time as you want to solve the weird cryptic puzzles and figure out what's going on. Legacy of Dragonhold is another one that does work really well as a group, but you can also totally play it solitaire, either with one character or a small group.
1: Yeah, it does have rules to support group, kind of like the adventure game I mentioned earlier. You have a certain set of skills and you have to choose a person to go after each encounter. And if you don't have the skills, oh, so bad for you, you're going to get hurt.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I love that system so much, but it is just a little bit annoying every time it's like... My thief chose which way we went last time, and so now we have a room with a lock chest in the corner. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The thief can't do anything with that lock chest in the corner because he's tired from choosing which we way we went. We sleepy. Yes, so now the warrior has to smash it open with his axe and break everything that's inside. As he does. It gives it some flavor. It's just a great story. So if we haven't convinced you to buy that one yet from all the times we've talked about it, I will try again. Go buy Legacy of Dragonhold. Yeah,
1: it's a game that keeps going, and regardless of how badly you screw up, the game keeps going, mm-hmm. sometimes hilariously.
0: Yes and there's a bunch of subplots that you will not discover all of on one playthrough, so there's plenty of replayability there. The last kind of dedicated solitaire game that I wanted to mention is a little one called Black Sonata, which is another one from Side Room Games designed by John Keane. It was uh, kick in 2017. And I'm not sure it's a good game yet, but it's interesting. The concept is that you are in Elizabethan London, And you were trying to track down the identity of Shakespeare's Black Lady, the woman that he wrote all of his sonnets to. So basically, you were wandering around the map trying to sort of pick up her trail. There's sort of a random movement deck for her. You know, you pick a random card that tells you what set of cards to use, and it defines a path. But the path isn't telling you specific locations where she is. It's like she's at a place with a church, then she's at a place with a bridge, then she's at a place with a store. And there's like three or four of those icons on any given space on the map. Mm-hmm. So you have an idea of the kinds of places she might be, and eventually you can start narrowing down where she is. And basically when you get there, you have a card with tactically placed holes in it that you put over one of the cards of the deck and flip over to see what letters there are, and that will start giving you information on who the black lady is. It's, I think, a little bit too much work for what it is, but it's a really clever little design.
1: So actually kind of a deduction game.
0: Yeah, it it, it absolutely is. You're trying to identify which of these, I think, eight or ten women it is. She's a rich person or she's a catholic or you know there's certain criteria and eventually you're able to figure out who she is or not because i'm apparently bad at this game (laughs) but it's interesting
3: that does sound really interesting
0: i'll be happy to bring it if you want to play it sometime Mm -hmm. and it is again a dedicated solitaire game i don't think there's a meaningful way you could have multiple players in it but surely you could do it as a team
1: one game I wanted to talk about uh, is 2018 released by John H. Butterfield.
0: This is Sandy's
1: favorite game called
0: Space Corp. Sandy is not entirely convinced.
3: <laughs> I'm not good with names. So if I don't know what it looks like.
1: <laughs> so this is basically an investigation of space. You have a corporation and it's got
0: three phases. Start in the inner solar system and then you go, go out outer to the system solar system. system, system. Eventually
3: oh, yeah, Okay. <laughs>
0: Listen to that enthusiasm, folks. She loves it. Yeah, totally. <laughs>
3: but yes, in Space Corps, you it's do. Not have... the worst game he's made me play.
0: Now, <laughs> I need okay, you wait, to tell wait, me. Wait, wait. What is the worst yes. game I've made you play?
3: It's going to be hard to narrow down. There may be think an think episode in this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll have to think about
3: that. All right, minute. fair
0: enough. But not Space Corps.
1: So yeah, you have actually three separate boards representing the phases of your interstellar universe it's a fairly simple game you the math to get to a place is very easy you basically play cards to build up your strength in terms of how you move how much you can explore and how much you can deal with things and dollars aren't a thing you worry about they're just victory points A trillion and that's it. You basically explore.
0: You go to a planet. It has some resources on it. If you're and the first one to can get there. Produce.
1: Between other phases, you can only keep like one thing as well as your infrastructure. You can also use the infrastructure of any player in the multiplayer, which is weird. So one person could be good at engines and you need to do an engine-y thing this round. Mm-hmm. And you use their stuff, but they get a card as yeah, payment. You, you, yeah, you, like-
0: you pay them for it to some extent.
1: But uh, it was originally designed as a solitaire game. I can see that. With basically you playing against the other corporations which also have a more random force, as well as some more vicious aliens that take place. And there's a separate deck driving the solitaire game.
0: I could see that because it sort of harkens back to some of the B-17 ambush thing where you've got a big, long, complex system that... And it's not that complex, but again, there's a lot of depth you can go into that you may not have other players who are sufficiently interested to spend that time on it.
1: Totally, yeah. And if you look at the Ambush series, John Butterfield was a designer on Ambush. Brilliant! Brilliant! So yeah, a kind of callback there.
0: All right, cool.
2: You can also, with the Mechanical Cats expansion to Root, you can play Root single player against the Mechanical Cats. Okay. That seems like it'd be really hard, right? We did a three-player game of it with three factions against the cats, and that was pretty challenging. So I imagine by yourself it'd be really challenging. I'm
0: guessing it has some kind of balancing mechanism. For the number of players. players. It does, it so. does, okay. it does. But, like,
2: but I mean, still, still, like if you were just going to be the so, renegade. Uh, that one actually probably wouldn't be that hard because it's really easy to get points as the vagabond, like really vagabond, easy. Vagabond,
1: yes, so. thank you. All right, cool. Actually, I don't think it lets you play the
2: vagabond against him. I mean, you can do whatever you want. It's, it's your true. game. Yeah, okay, <laughs> <probably>. <laughs> I think by default, right, it recommends you play the birds or the. There's three factions the it recommends: the, the woodland, the lions, and there's one other. I think it recommends one, one of the expansion ones. Do you maybe? want the expansion races? I think the lizard cult maybe against the wow. the cats. Okay, so
3: all things, my cats drag dead into the house. Yeah. Is, want are the
0: ones who... Yeah, totally. But yeah, so like we said, almost any game can be made into a solitaire game if you try hard enough or have multiple personalities. There are some like deduction games like Code 777, really bad as a solitaire game. (laughs) That's true. Uh, Mysterium, really bad as a solitaire game. But if you're committed enough and lonely enough, you can make almost anything into a solitaire game. If there are favorite solitaire games of yours or games that you have made into solitaire games, we'd love to hear about them. As always, we would love to hear your opinions, your commentary. We would love to get a review on iTunes if you have the time to do that, because that makes our lives a lot easier.
1: And we need stuff voted for on the poll of what episode to do next. This was one of, I think, our top Yeah,
0: this was, this was our leader for a long time, so apparently I'm not the only person out there who has more time than friends. Mm. We're looking forward to seeing what you guys want to hear us talk about next. Our next episode on January 1st should be our year-end wrap-up, so that will give you an idea of what we've been rambling about all this time and all the stuff we haven't had time to talk about. So until then... Happy holidays, and we'll talk to you next month. Have fun. Happy holidays. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via incompetech.com. Full details can be found at ascentofboardgames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you... Or listening. It's just my editing time.
2: Yeah, meaningless, really. Thanks, Joe. <laughs>
0: Appreciate that.